You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. 423, guard your heart for it determines the course of your life. So what I believe is that believers in the body of Christ, we need Holy Ghost-filled people who are powerful, Holy Ghost-filled people that can work in the miraculous, uh, move in the gifts of the Spirit, have discernment. You know, I think every person here has been to one of my supernatural services, seen the power of God, seen the move of God, seen miracles. But at the same time, there's another arm of this, and that is people need to know to think critically. A lot of churches should put, I'm not criticizing any church in particular, but you should put a sign over the door that says, check your brain at the door. In other words, a lot of times people want to go into services because they don't want to think for themselves. They want someone to tell them what to think. And I like, there's a ministry, a very popular man. His name is Ravi Zacharias, uh, and he's one of my personal heroes. And he has a ministry, and he does a series called Let My People Think. In other words, some of the greatest believers in the day are people that know how to defend what they believe. You're going to find out that the gospel is intellectual as much as it is supernatural. The Apostle Paul was daily in the school of Tyrannus. His ministry in the church of Ephesus, when you discover Paul's ministry, his staple letter was the book of Romans, but his staple place of ministry was the church at Ephesus. And he got more people born again and saved in the church of Ephesus and created more disciples in the church of Ephesus. And the way he did it was he was going into Tyrannus. He was a, a believer. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He converted to Paul's ministry. And he was in his school of philosophy, teaching philosophy to people in Ephesus revolved around Christ. Because he knew how to engage the people of that culture. They were not supernatural people. They were people that believed in breaking things down the way Aristotle and Plato broke those things down. And Paul was able to do that. Because he thought for himself. He could tell you how Jesus Christ measured up to people that were philosophers. He could answer about Jesus when it came to questions that Socrates would ask. Because he was a thinker, he knew how to think for himself. So someone say think. think. And so people that think are people that do their own chewing. You remember we talked about this? I talked about how one of my favorite teachers has told me over the years, Chris, you need to chew your own cud. You know, I talked about what a cud was. A cud is when a cow has five stomachs, he wants to go eat. He starts to take some grass. He starts eating that cud. He chews it up, chews it up, right? Sean, chews it up, chews it up, and then he swallows it. And then it can't go into that stomach any further. So what it does is after he swallows it, it comes back from his first stomach and he puts it back into his mouth after it's been digested once. And that food that came from its first stomach back into its mouth that he's chewing is called his cud. And he's chewing on that. And that's a cud. And then he'll eventually chew that and swallow it. But you know what will happen sometimes? A cow, after he's chewing his cud, spits it out. And another cow comes along and eats that already digested food that that cow previously who spit it out ate it. And so when you don't do your own thinking you know what you're doing you're going over to someone else's cut and picking that up and eating that so you know what it's best to trust the holy spirit so you say holy spirit what's this word say let me think about this let me fix my thought upon this to see what the holy ghost is teaching me so i know that we live in a busy society and everyone wants a minister to come along and tell the minister how is this going to benefit your life. But here's the fact of the matter. No minister has enough time to address all the people in his congregation and answer your problems. And your answers are going to come when you're with the Holy Spirit in that quiet place. And the best thing a minister can do is not give you a fish but teach you how to fish. And say, this is how you can go to the Word of God and practically find things so that you can learn how to apply it to your life. Amen. So I'm not, I, you know, it's okay to choose someone's cut every now and then, but the most important thing is that you know how to get your own cut and how to do your own digesting. Amen. Okay, so when it comes to chewing your own cut, you've got to learn how to study the Bible. And so one of the things that um, every believer should be armed with is good habits in how to study the Bible. So you got to walk up to a believer that says he's mature, and you say, okay, really, you're a mature believer. Yeah, what are your Bible study methods? What do you mean by that? Well, how do you study the Bible? What do you do? I mean, you just open it. Well, the one answer you're going to get from most people is, well, I just open up the Bible and the Holy Spirit shows me what it means. I just trust the Holy Ghost. He's going to illuminate my mind to this. You say, well, okay, what does it mean? They tell you what it means. I was talking to a, a woman in particular this weekend. She's real sweet. She's from another country. And she's, she's very funny. And she says, Reverend Palmer, um, what do you think this verse means? 
And she sent me the verse, and I sent it back to her, and I says, well, I think this verse is talking about X, Y, Z. She says, well, what is it? But the, the Lord gave me a revelation that's talking about this. I said, well, it's not talking about that. <laughs> How do you know? I said, well, let's identify the subject. The subject's not this, it's this. Oh, okay, but, but what if God gives me a revelation? It's, it, I said, it's not God giving you that revelation. <laughs> and see, the problem is many times we have um, believers that want to put things in the Scripture. The Scripture's not saying and I'll never forget this. The Lord asked me one time, He says, if you preach something in my word and fail to say what it says is in my word. In other words, if you take a verse that says something and you put your own ideas into that and it's no longer the word of God, then how can you have faith in it? How can you preach and believe in it? It's not God's word. So I do think that it's very important for us to make a good habit at identifying what God's word is trying to communicate to us. Someone once told me, well, you're being too technical. I said, you know, technicalities is what keeps bridges from falling. <laughs> I'm glad that the uh, architect and the engineer of that bridge knew exactly how many zeros to measure in there. Otherwise, one zero, then all the cars are going to go tumbling. So I think there's something that's said to being technical about the Word of God. And I'm just going to give to you some good Bible study methods this evening so you can never say that I didn't show you how to study the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Is that okay? Um, there's people that study the Word of God in a, in a devotional way. And I think that all of us should wake up in the morning and before you get out of bed, read a chapter of the Bible. You don't have to study it. You don't have to get out, you know, your lexicon and all your books and papers. I think there's something to be said for just waking up in the morning and reading it devotionally, right? Uh, but if you want to be a serious student of the Word of God, we have to learn how to get past just devotional reading and dig out what's in there because there's more in there than you're going to find when you do your devotional reading. And I like what one of my teachers told me. He said, Chris, he says, there's so much good stuff in the Word of God, you don't have to make stuff up about it. <laughs> you can get enough preaching just what's in there than making stuff up about what the Word of God really says. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I think that if we do the message and what's in the Word of God unjustly, and we start to abuse it, we're going to really dim what's in the message. The message is more beautifully taken, and the message is better when we read it the way God wants us to read it. Right? It's more powerful when we read it that way versus what we think the message says. Well, whose message is better, your message or my message? You say, well, brother, you know the Holy Spirit can show us. I'm going to show you something. There's a lot of cult leaders out here saying the Lord told them. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading about the Jim Jones cult. And you know Jim Jones? You guys know who Jim Jones is, right? You know Jim Jones used to preach for Oral Roberts and William Branham? He brought them in to preach for him. Study it. And look at Jim Jones. 900 people dead in Jonestown because those people didn't know how to know, study the Word of God. They couldn't go to the Word of God. Jim Jones had to show them everything about the Word of God for themselves. And you'd have told well, he's a man of God. You know, he would never do this. He would never do this until he stood up one day and told all the people to take that Kool-Aid. And they drank the Kool-Aid. Now we say don't drink the Kool-Aid, right? I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I know this. If a pastor gets up there, I may love that pastor. And I may think that pastor's great and believe everything. But the minute he crosses that line, see ya. I'm out. I don't care who you are. That's right. And I would expect that anybody that likes my teachings would do the same. Well, Brother Palmer, he's been good up to this point, but it's time that we shake your hand and go on your own way. Do you believe? Is that okay? Can I say that? <laughs> Thank you, Sister Anita. I hope that's on the podcast. <laughs> Once you begin to read the Bible, you're going to discover the very first thing. It's a very large book. It can be somewhat intimidating. And so we talked about, we ended before we got into our exercise last week. Um, talking about how to analyze scripture at the sentence level. And I don't want to get back into that, but I want to show you tonight how some observations that you can make. Now, you may think this is boring, you may not, but they'll be helpful. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for sitting up front. I need a cheerleader like you. <laughs> <laughs> some things that you can do at the paragraph level. Well, first, let me say this. Do you remember what I told you last week about good Bible study methods, how I talked to you about... Well, let me find them in my notes. There are two Greek words... And I want to say this before we go any further. The first Greek word is eisegesis. Someone say eisegesis. eisegesis. Someone says, there you go, being Greek again. Well, I paid good money for my Greek education, so I'm going to use it tonight, okay? <laughs> There's something called eisegesis. Eisegesis, the Greek word ice, means into, and we get the word Jesus from another Greek word that simply means to lead. Eisegesis is a practice in uh, Bible study methods, which simply means to lead into the Scripture. So basically, what eisegesis is, is leading your own ideas into what the Word of God says. Hello, somebody. Mm -hmm. Then there's something called exegesis. 
Ek is the Greek word, means out of, and Jesus means to lead out of, and this simply means to lead out. So in good Bible study methods, we want to be exegetes and not eisegetes. Amen. Someone say amen. Okay, because there's many times people go to the scriptures, they have an idea, they think about something, they say, yes, that must be from God. That idea has to be from God. So you know what they do? They open up the word of God, and they say, right here, right here, right here, here it is in the word of God. And you say, no, 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 no. You went into the word of God, took your idea that you started from, and read it right into there. And that's how you get false doctrine. Somebody has an idea that there's no trinity. So they open up the word of God and they find passages of scripture that may indicate that Jesus was by himself. And they see, see it's Jesus alone. And they read it in the scripture and they find out that the rest of the scripture can't prove it. So they'll jump over those passages of scripture. And so what we have to do when we come to the word of God, and it takes discipline to do this, because I'm going to tell you why in just a second. It takes discipline. It takes discipline. Because we will come to the Word of God with our own pre-understanding and we will start reading our ideas into the Word of God and the Word of God is not saying that. Culture is saying that. So write this down if you're taking notes. <laughs> the very first thing I want to talk to you tonight about is pre-understanding. You say, well, pre-understanding? What do you mean by pre-understanding? Pre-understanding is just all of our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text. Everything that we think that we know about the text is pre-understanding. Things that have been formulated, both consciously and unconsciously, before we actually study the text in detail. Is this okay for you tonight? Mm -hmm. Is this helpful? Okay. So, you say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, pre-understanding includes the things that your pastors taught you. It includes the things that I teach you. If I teach you something about the Word of God, and next time you go to the Word of God, you say, well, you look at your notes from Reverend Palmer's service, and you go into the Scripture, and you say, is this good or is this not good? Well, pre-understanding is only good if it's correct. <laughs> right? So we want to make sure that we take only correct pre-understanding and bring it to the Scripture. How is pre-understanding formed? Well, it's formed from teaching and preaching. It's formed from jokes, it's formed from music, and it's formed by culture. And so pre-understanding services, uh, when we come to the text with a theological idea, already formed in our minds, made up about something. The Lord showed me this one time. He says, you will miss out in the Word of God a lot if you do not allow yourself to unlearn some things that are incorrect. I thought to myself, what do you mean, God? You mean there's some things I'm believing that are not correct? And he says, yes. You'll find that the places that you come into in Scripture that you cannot figure out what it means usually means that in order for you to crack what it's trying to say, you have to unlearn something about that passage before you can learn something about that passage. You get to, I don't know what this means. I looked at it. I looked at concordances. I looked at, why, why can't I figure this out? Because something in your believing is incorrect and you have to adjust what it's saying. Right? I mean, do we want to know what the Word of God says here? And so we, a lot of times, start into a text with a slant that we're looking for and use a text to search for details that fit our agenda. The worst way to come to Scripture is say, I believe this, I'm going to go to Scripture to prove it out. They, you can end up in trouble with doing something like that. You should go to the text and say, what is it saying? What does this say right here? Because when you find out what it says, you're going to find out, like I just said, the message itself is a lot better if you do it that way. And it will come full circle. Most people when they have pre-understanding it goes about this. You get stuck a quarter of the way and you can't rectify what this passage is saying with other passages that seemingly contradict what it's saying. Yeah. Has that ever happened to anyone or am I the only person that has stood up all night and been like, I'm not trying, I don't, I don't, what does this say here, right? So pre-understanding always lurks around verses of familiarity. Can I say that again and get an amen for this? Pre-understanding usually is around verses of familiarity. For example, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Right? I, I've seen athletes that have this on their Twitter page. You know, tweeting stuff that you're like, really? I may take a shot at the Detroit Pistons every now and then, you know, on the Twitter. Or every day. <laughs> every day. But you know what? Uh, people that really know what this verse is saying, it doesn't mean what Paul is. Paul really saying here that you can get up in the morning and 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 run a marathon. 
and, and do art? Is that really what he's talking about in the scripture? Or is it not what he's talking about in the scripture? What does he mean when he says I can do? When he says all things, is he talking about anything you can fit into this verse? Or is he saying something specific when he means all things? What does he mean by all things? Does he mean whatever I want to do, become the next American idol and the next celebrity? And all my selfish ambitions and desires, as long as I claim and give Christ some glory, I can do it? Or, you know, you'll find the scripture in, in uh, Ecclesiastes, I was reading last night, that contradicts that. It says that the battle doesn't belong to the swift, but time and chance happens to all people. In other words, it doesn't, it's not always about your effort and what you can do through Christ. Sometimes time and chance brings it to pass. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And it's not always the most talented that get it. It's the people that just time and chance happens to. So what do we do with this scripture? Now we have a contradiction of which one's going to give, right? Chances are it has to do with what you're believing about that scripture. I won't get into that scripture tonight because I have a lot to get through. I'm going to give you an example about how your pre-understanding has really maybe deceived you. You ready for this? It's Christmas time. I thought this would be a good example. We go see a Christmas cantata. How many are going to go to a Christmas cantata this year, right? How many are going to go to a Christmas uh, uh, play? A Christmas play, right? We're going to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas or, right? We go watch Charlie Brown Christmas. How many wise men are there usually? How many wise men are there? How many? Has anybody ever been where there's 12? How many are there? Three, right? Does it say in scripture there was three wise men? No. No. Where does it say three wise men? Chances are there was more than three. They came a long way, right? They didn't travel by threes. You say, what does it matter, Brother Palmer? I guess it doesn't matter in your day-to-day activity, you know. If you need God to heal your body or heal you, it doesn't really matter. But I'm, we're, this is not what we're talking about tonight. Three wise men, okay? Where did they end up finding Jesus at? Where did they end up finding Jesus at? A manger, right? They show up and there he is in the manger. Does the Bible ever say that they found him in the manger? Actually, you'll find out in Luke chapter 2, or is it Mark chapter 2, that they find him in a house. Yes, I just read that the other day. You did, so it's in there. What chapter was it? Sister Anita, what chapter was that in? You don't remember? Boy, I should have just... Exactly. You know, I studied it thoroughly. You know what I find out in... in, in um, is uh, well, you find you let me know. You look it up and let me know where it's at in scripture. But you will find out that when the wise men found Jesus in New Testament, they found him in a house as a young child. And the Greek word "young child" does not mean a baby. It means that he was probably two or three years of age. Wow. But we've been, but but, but brother Palmer, but, but in the manger? No, 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 no. You watch too much Charlie Brown Christmas. So Charlie Brown Christmas is now telling you that Jesus was born in a manger, and he was not. He was in a house. We talk about this one all the time in class. We laugh about it. Or you watch too much uh, Christmas Story, you know, and what's the little boy's name in Christmas Story? Ralphie, right? But it's okay. I mean, you're not, we are not heretics because we think that they showed up in a manger. But if the wise men are watching from heaven, they're probably like, man, we didn't show up at that manger. We showed up at a house. We knocked on the door. The jo- the it's in Matthew, mm-hmm. the second chapter, uh-huh. verse 11. I got it. Okay, let me read it. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Didn't say manger. Oikos is a Greek word for house. Oikos. And it means a house, right? Okay, so is this settled? Okay, what about this one? We have a song that we were playing just a few minutes ago that says... Um, the first Noel, the angels did say, certain poor shepherds and fields that they lay. Then it says, uh, on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, Noel. Well, first of all, Israel is the Mediterranean climate. <laughs> it really doesn't snow over there. <laughs> There's probably nothing cold about it. Seeing that Jesus wasn't born in December, he was born in September, theologians say. And he wasn't born on the 25th of December. Nope. We know that as a fact. So there was probably nothing cold. They probably went out to freeze and, why are we doing all this shivering? Oh, it's so cold. Is that an angel? Oh my gosh. We don't have to freeze no more. Here comes the angel. And the angel says, oh, you, know, you go out there and see the Savior's born. They went in the barn and it got warm and there was Jesus. They all had cookies and milk. <laughs> no, well, on a cold winter's night. That's not in the Bible. It's not cold about it. And so you're reading the Bible and you see those why, those, those shepherds, and you're feeling bad for them. Right? But it didn't say it's cold. So guess what? We have all these ideas. So if this is, okay, I'll give you another example. This is funny. Go to the Old Testament. How many when you think of the story of Jonah and the whale? 
you think of old Jonah down there in a maybe eight foot sphere of some sort with a little bit of water at the bottom sitting in the whale's belly kind of just hanging out. How many see it that way? Brother Jordan, you see it that way? How, sister, you see it that way? Man, it's like a, a room, a little water at the bottom. All right? You know where we got that from? If you, a lot of people do see it that way. I've asked people. You know where you get that from? Pinocchio. That's Pinocchio. Is that right? That's Pinocchio inside the belly of the whale hanging out. And so when we read it, we see the only, the only thing that we have in our mind of someone being in a whale of a belly is Pinocchio. So we're reading about Jonah and he's like Pinocchio. He might as well just get a long nose while he's at it. So this is the question I'm trying to make. This is the point I want to make. How much other stuff have we put in the scripture that's not there? So we can't come to the text with what we believe. We need to find out what's in the text. Right? Well, how about this? How many theological concepts about the Word of God? How many ideas that we have about Jesus? We were talking, me and Brother Jordan, about all the verses of love that it talks about in 1 John. And you'll find out that 1 John was written to the brethren. You'll find out in the book of 1 John, most of the verses where it says to love one another is not talking about loving the world. It's talking about loving the brethren. So you have to find out what it's talking about because someone says, I just love everybody. I just love everybody in the whole world. You don't know everybody in the whole world. How can you love everybody? We need to find out what is it exactly trying to say here. Amen. Amen. Is that okay? Amen. So let's uh, look at a couple things that will be helpful before we do our exercise tonight. Are you excited about our exercise? How many were uh, challenged by what we found out that Jesus said last week about how, or two weeks ago, about how we are to take the unrighteous mammon and use it to make friends so that when that mammon fails, those friends receive us into everlasting dwelling places. Basically, all it's saying is that take the money that you have in this earth and use it so and give it away while you have a chance to give it away so people can receive the gospel. And those people that receive the gospel can welcome you into everlasting habitations. Amen. Tell me people get God gives money to and they're going to get to heaven and find out they squandered it as bad stewards. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. Amen. Were you blessed by that? We're going to do another good exercise tonight, okay? But let's take a couple examples real quick, and we'll show you how to get out of your own pre-understanding. Is this okay? Are you guys with me tonight? Okay, it's okay. First, number one, these are things to look for in Scripture. This is how you read something at a paragraph level. If you're looking at a paragraph of Scripture, uh, let's say 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 and, and through 4, how do I find out what this paragraph of Scripture means? These are some techniques to use. Number one, learn how to recognize when the writer is moving from general to specific. In other words, he's going to mention something in a general manner. And then he's going to get more specific about it as he goes. I'll give you an example. I love Thanksgiving dinner. I love turkey, stuffing, taking corn and mixing it into my mashed potatoes. And I love pumpkin pie and coffee afterwards. Now, the very first thing I said is I love Thanksgiving dinner, right? But... Let me be more specific about that. I love turkey, pumpkin pie, and all the other things that my mom makes, right? So let me give you an example in Scripture. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, because all He's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. We know that Scripture, right? Romans chapter 12. But how do we do that? See, he just gives a general statement right here. But, like most people, he was human, he is going to become more specific about it. So he says here in verse 9, this is the way to worship. How do they worship in the Old Testament? Sacrifices. So this is how you do it. Let me be more specific about it. Don't just pretend to love others. Ah, okay. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. These are things that we can do to present our body to God a living sacrifice. So you say, well, you know, I want to get my body to God a living sacrifice. That means I got to refrain from sexual morality until I get married. That's not what he didn't say that there. I mean, that's true, but there are other ways to do that, right? You love others. You be good hospitality. So the next time someone comes to your house, maybe a gospel ministry, say, I'm going to take my uh, minister over there. I'm going to invite him to my house. I'm going to clean my house. I'm going to make a dinner for him. That's hospitality, right? Is that presenting to your God? 
a li your body a living sacrifice? Yes. Well, how can you prove that? Well, he just moved and told you how to do it. It's pretty simple, right? So when you're reading scripture, look for places where the text moves from a general statement to him being more specific. I mean, really train yourself to be on a lookout for that. It's a good exercise, all right? Number two, dialogue. How many of this is important? Dialogue. We looked at this last week. One of the most important things to understand in Scripture is who is talking and who is being talked to. Am I right here? And uh, you're looking in dialogue who is listening to the conversation and what is the temperature of this dialogue. When you read the words of Jesus, do you ever stop and ask yourself who he's talking to? Thank you for being honest, Sister Nia. Thank you so much for saying no, because you want to know something. A lot of times I don't either. <laughs> you just, Jesus said, you know, uh, to the, the rich young ruler, give all that you have and come follow me. We think that he's talking to us. He wasn't. He was talking to the rich young ruler. Do you think it's possible that Jesus had a reason for telling that to the rich young ruler? Because if he was talking to all of us, guess what? We all fail. He told it to him. And if you see, oh wait a second, he didn't tell his disciples to do that. He didn't tell that to the Pharisees. He didn't tell it to, he said to Zacchaeus, let me go to your house today. He didn't tell Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, sell all that you have. He says, Zacchaeus, take all that you've stolen and pay it back. And he did it. But he didn't tell Zacchaeus, sell all that you have and come follow me. He told it to the rich young ruler. You'll find out that the rich young ruler is the biblical example of a fool. Someone trying to hold on to what he will never eventually be able to keep. That's something. So you'll find there's more in that when you find out there's a reason why Jesus said it to him and not us. And that's something. A lot of you are like, because I didn't really want to sell all that stuff I had. <laughs> <laughs> Discover in it. Is this an argument? Is he having an argument? Is he having discussion, a lecture or a sermon? You know what I don't, I don't like? I don't like people today that make Jesus to be the ultimate nice guy. He's just a nice guy. Jesus was not the ultimate nice guy. That's what, what I was listening to a, a, a lecture on Jesus and I was reminded of this. Jesus is so interesting to philosophers and people that don't even believe in Jesus. It's because he is the ultimate anomaly of a human being. He was kind to children and women trusted him that he didn't want anything more than to help them. Jesus was always surrounded by women, but he wasn't gay. Isn't that something? Jesus was always surrounded by men, and he wasn't overbearing. Jesus could talk to sinners and get sinners who are hard in their heart to cry and weep. Yet on the same token, he could look at the religious establishment and condemn them. Jesus wasn't selling out to the sinners, but he wasn't selling out to the religious establishment. And so we look in the life of Jesus and we see all these apparent contradictions. How can you be the toughest of men and go into the temple with a whip and start whipping people? But on the same sense, how can you at the same time let children run their hands through their beard and laugh and play when they sit on your lap? People don't understand this. How can the highest expression of power be in a baby in a manger without the wise men there? Amen. I was listening to a song this week, not because I listened to this music, but because it's part of our culture I wanted to see. And there's a song out there by a rapper who's claiming he's God now. Yeah. And he's talking about in the song how he's a God, he may not be the most high, but he's considered up with the high. Okay, he's married to a, uh, a super celebrity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he's saying he's God, right? But he... <laughs> Here's the thing about it. Let I me. Mean, here's the thing about it. You listen to the song, and you find out this guy is aggressively stating that he's the most high God. He's just demanding this, demanding that, demanding this, demanding that. And yet, the ultimate expression of power was the ultimate king of the ages who came and was lowly 
and meek and kind and demanded nothing of no one and instead of demanding that you get his corvette and park it for him so he can get in it he demanded that you follow him that he gave his life up for you and died and bled on a cross this is why people say there's got to be something to this jesus but he wasn't just nice all the time people that think that the book of that we should always just speak positive about people is that really in scripture? Jesus called Herod a fox. He said, you go tell that fox. Jesus looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and said, woe unto you, vipers. Who, you know what vipers do when things get, when, when they're, the vipers are known like in, the, in Paul's time, he called them vipers because you'll find out that, like in Paul, when you take, vipers were known to be inside of sticks and twigs and wood, and when you take the wood and throw it in the fire, the vipers come out. So anytime that you see judgment, you see the Pharisees running from it. They're like vipers. Anytime the pressure comes on, it gets hot. They're gone. Jesus says, you can't even own up and take responsibility for the mess that you've caused Israel. Or you find out that you see Jesus calling them, you are whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. In other words, in, on the outside you look like everything is well. On the inside you are dead and dry and dying. You'll find out that some of the most abrasive language that could have been used in New Testament times was used in the book of Jude. When Jude is condemning those that came in among them that claimed to be Christians and followed Jesus and led people astray. And he says, you're clouds without water. You're twice plucked up by the roots. You're, you're, you're plucked up by the roots, twice dead. This language in the Greek, we had to translate it, is some of the most contentious language in the Bible. That means that Christians were not just nice people. When they had true apostolic authority, the apostolic enterprise requires people to defend what God has given them. And our responsibility in the body of Christ is not just to, we're not militant and going out there and telling people they're going to hell. We don't do that. But you know what we do? You're not coming in here and getting these people and leading them away so they're going to abandon the faith. And if I have to, I'll call you out publicly just so my people know I don't approve of it. And we get this night, you do what you want to do, and we just, you know, no, 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 that's not in the Bible. And how do you know that? Because when you read the New Testament, you pay attention to the temperature of the Scripture. Know the English language. And if you're not satisfied, go learn Greek. I told you, I tell you, what, I think it's good for people to learn Greek. All the stuff we watch on TV and stuff we give our time to, go learn a biblical language. It'll do you some good, amen. Or Hebrew, amen. I'm a New Testament guy, I like Greek. Okay, how about condition clauses? Does that sound okay? You say, what's the condition clause? I know, we got to go back to English class for this. Conditions whereby some action, consequence, reality, or result will happen. So, in other words, you've got to keep the condition attached to the result. You have, and if you, you separate, you've abused the scripture. That's okay. Yeah. Give you an example. 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is a scripture, a clause, it's a passage, it's a sentence that has a verb and a subject and a predicate. Okay? That's based upon condition. Okay, what's the condition? If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Do you know what the result is? We lie and don't practice the truth. So in other words, you can say, well, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we're going to heaven. No, that's not. You, you're separating it now. Well, you can be a Christian and claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. No, 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 no. You can't separate it. If that's you, you lie and don't practice the truth. Do you see this? Okay, I'll give you a condition cause. This is cause and effect. You know, that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's the condition. That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the result. So if you want everlasting life, you've got to believe on Him. You know what happens in, in, in universalism? Universalism is we've taken the conditions out. God loves everybody. He gave His love to all mankind. And He's just, everyone's going to be saved. You're saved. You don't even know you're saved. No, 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 no. It requires faith and belief in Jesus. And then they'll come after you and say, what about those people that haven't heard the truth? You know what the answer to that is? I don't know, but I know God's fair and just, and I'll let Him handle that. But what I do know is what the text says, and it requires belief in Jesus. Amen. Another thing is the terms and emotions that are found inside of certain words. So you say, how do you find the temperature of a scripture? How do we know the, the mood that's in that scripture that's being evoked by what those words are saying? Right? You guys feel like you're in class tonight. I mean, 
okay, um, you know, if I said to, um, you know, I said to Jordan, you know, uh, Jordan, I can't believe you did that. You see the idiom, I can't believe. And now you're thinking he's upset. Oh, if I said, Jordan, why did you do that? What do you think is, if you're just reading this, what would you think the temperature of it said, Jordan, why did you do that? You wouldn't think I was that mad at him, right? You might just think I'm asking, why did you do that? But if you see, I can't believe you did that. Now you're like, oh, he's yelling at him. That's what you use when you're yelling at somebody. This is going to show you how the writer was feeling when he wrote the scripture. I'll give you an example. You don't understand how people feel today when, they, when you're reading text messages unless you use the emojicons, right? <laughs> you, know, they, you know why they created emojicons? Some guy was smart enough to realize that people are misinterpreting their tones in text. Let me just give you some emojicons so you know how I feel when I'm writing this text. Because <laughs> you were writing text and saying, um, I'll see you later. Or okay, you'd write okay, right? And you'd be like, okay. It's not a lot. Okay, okay, like, okay, get out of my face, or okay, I can't wait to see you. So you put an emoji con. Okay, smiley face. Oh, he's, he's happy with me. Okay, sideways, slash, like, I'm, I'm not happy right now. I'm frustrated. Well, there's no, Paul didn't have emoji cons. James didn't have emoji cons. So you know what he had to do? Rely on the language. I'll give you an example. Galatians 4. You like how I'm using technology to tie all this in? Galatians chapter 4, verse number 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for also have been come as you are. You have done me no wrong. Where is then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Can anybody show me some tones of emotion here? I beg of you, brethren. He didn't say ask. I beg of you, brethren. So is it possible to say this is an emotional chapter in Scripture? Yeah. How about when he says, I would almost pluck out my eyes and give them to, would pluck your eyes out, you give them to me. You know what he's saying right here? I, I, I didn't want false teachers to come among you. I'd rather, instead of you believing everything the false teacher says, I wish I could have come in there and gouged your eyes out and taken them from you so you didn't have to witness the stuff they taught you. Now, this is metaphor. This is figure of speech now he's using to let you know how serious he thinks false teachers are. Some people say, well, see, he would pluck them out. We, can, we should pluck out people's eyes in the church, too. No, 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 no. Jesus says, your hand calls you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. Do you think this is what he really meant? Or is it possible he was using hyperbole, which is just exaggerated speech for sake of effect? We use hyperbole all the time. I went to the mall today, and everybody was there in the whole world. <laughs> you know what some people would do if you wrote that? So the way some people read the Bible, they would actually try to defend the fact that everybody could fit into the mall. Yes, Brother Palmer said it. Everybody was in the mall today. You say, but not everybody can fit in the mall. Well, it's the Bible and I believe it, and that settles it. Somehow they supernaturally fit in the mall. They had walls that they all walked in. The walls just expanded and it got bigger. <laughs> oh, is it possible? Is it more easy to believe that, that, that they were like us, that they were similar writers like we are, and we're just using figures of speech? Jesus was just saying sin is so serious that it's better you cut your hand off. He didn't say cut your hand off. I asked the Lord about this scripture one time. He says, isn't it easier to use self-control than to gouge your eyes out? I said, I'll use self-control, because I like these hands, my God. <laughs> Figures of speech, people. Use them in Revelation. Some people think in Revelation that you know, a lot of this stuff is figure of speech. you got to use them. Amen. All right. How about this? Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, when you see, oh, that's vocative case. Well, that means simply vocative is a vocal. You're saying, oh, you know, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thy Romeo? Oh, when you say, oh, that's language like, I'm down here, you know, it's love language. He says, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He says, uh, under her wings, uh, and you would not have it. He says, how often would I gather you children just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Well, I guess if you want to know what that scripture meant, you would have to know something about how a hen gathers its brood under its wings, Right? Some people read the scripture. Yeah, Jesus was saying something. You think, you know, you don't know what, you got to look that up. Go on Google and find out what a hen does. That's the easiest way to figure out what he's talking about. It means he's protecting them at the sake of self-sacrificing. Because when a hen's 
uh, brood is in trouble, the hen sacrifices itself and gets on top of him and won't relinquish them until it itself is dead. Wow. And Jesus was willing to do that for Jerusalem, but they rejected him. He was trying to protect them. He says, but your house is left to you desolate. That's pretty strong language there. So now we see in this passage how serious it is and the involvement is. I mean, ultimately, everything in Scripture is serious. But look for words that tip you off. Highlight them. Don't just highlight your favorite verses that Joyce Meyer tells you to highlight. Highlight some of this stuff, man. Be your own Joyce Meyer. Amen. Amen. I like Joyce Meyer, but I'm saying you be Joyce Meyer. <laughs> or whoever you like. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the next thing that you want to do after you're doing this is learn how to connect all this. Someone say connect. connect. Okay, it's important then to connect sentences to form the paragraph. So write this down if you're taking notes. After reading and carefully observing in terms of emotion, all these things, at the sentence level and the paragraph level, it's important to ask yourself uh, what relates and connects to the other paragraphs that come before and after the one you're studying. Let me say it simply. After you've examined sentences and examined paragraphs, then you want to figure out how that all connects. Take a passage of scripture. I'll show you since I got this nice board up here. And then you can read my handwriting. So this is your text. Let's just say three verses. You and your wife are studying three verses. Now... Based upon what we learned last week and what we learned this week, is you're going to look for words of emotions, you're going to learn conditions, you're going to look, learn, look for lists, you're going to look for all the stuff we learned last week. You remember that stuff, right? Repetition. Huh? Repetition. Rep, words of repetition. Good job. Words of repetition. And you have marked this whole thing up. You got words of repetition, clauses. Ah, no, 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 right? Now, what you're supposed to do is you are supposed to find out the inflow and the outflow of that verse. What has flown into that verse and wrong way in the arrow. What has flown into this verse? What flowed into it? And where has this verse flown into? In other words, you have to pay attention. If you're studying this these three verses, what are the verses before it? And what are the verses after it saying? Otherwise, you are taking it out of its context. This is how you connect it. And so when you do that, let's say you're studying. I'm going to show you. Very, this, this, this is really cool. Let's say you're studying Matthew chapter 8.22. Go there real quick. This is going to be good. You're going to see what I'm talking about here, okay? We got time for this tonight. Matthew 8.22. Very, very, very. I've heard the faith preachers, the healing ministers, and I've heard all the other preachers preach on this verse, and nothing they say ever seemed to make sense to me. So I had a thought to study it out on my own. Use some of these techniques we're talking about here. Let me just give you the verse itself. Jesus is going to heal a blind man. But Jesus says, uh, verse number, uh, what did I say? Matthew chapter, Mark, excuse me, Mark 8. It, it helps to know the book of the Bible you're going to go to. Amen. <laughs> Very first thing. No, the book of the Bible. 8.22. And he comes, Jesus, to Bethsaida. So if you're reading this, you might want to know something about Bethsaida. How big is it? That's geography. I haven't talked about that. You could say, oh, I'm going to study Bethsaida. And they brought him, who is they, the twelve, brought him a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. Okay? And he took the blind man. So... You notice the blind man wasn't getting besought to be touched. The disciples who brought the blind man to Jesus wanted Jesus to touch the blind man. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town. Very important. Why did he take him out of the town? These are questions you could ask yourself. Why did he do this? Why didn't he heal him in the town? Okay. And when he'd spit on his eyes, what is he doing spitting on people? Didn't even say that he. Uh, he didn't even say that he spit in his hands and put it in his eyes. He spit in a man's eyes, people. Yeah. Sometimes we think he just spit in his hands and. Yeah. No. <laughs> Hawked a loogie. No, he didn't do that. Hey, I let Jesus do it for me. I knew something good was gonna come out of it. 
He put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw out. And he looking up said, I see men as trees walking. Now this, 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 today. Have a blind man come to your service. Can you see yet? No, I kind of can see. Well, it's okay because Jesus, you know, he prayed for the man the first time. He couldn't see right. That's possible. I believe that. But what's wrong with Jesus? He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. His healing powers aren't working. Well, some people say, yeah. Some people say he wasn't flowing. That's why he's a man. He just wasn't flowing in the gift that day. And, you know, sometimes we're on, sometimes we're not. It's really? Jesus not flowing in the gifts? I'm, I'm glad, sister, you think that because I think that. But some other people, think, well, you know, I'm, I was just off. But Jesus one time, he was off. Oh, wait a second. No, no, this is the one people like to say. The, the, the man just didn't have enough faith. Let me tell you something. When you're dealing with people that are sick, you go to the hospital visits, and you go visit people in the hospital, and then or do funerals and bury people that died early from cancer, you better not tell those people they didn't have enough faith. They'll boot you right out real fast. Well, it's the truth. It, listen, don't tell that to people. Don't. Jordan? No. <laughs> well, what is it? He didn't even have enough faith for Jesus. Oh, wait a second. Well, maybe Jesus was... Maybe this is part of a bigger picture. Maybe this verse is, maybe we could look at the verses going into it and going out of it, and maybe we could find out why he did this. Maybe Is it possible Jesus did this on purpose? I think, I think we're going to find out. If, I think he did this for a reason. And as he looked up, he said, I see men in the streets walking. After he put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. Oh, okay. Well, how about we find out what went into this verse? Is that is that? I think that's a good place to start. Someone say, context is your friend. So before you go asking Kenneth Copeland and and me and and whoever else you like what they think about the verse, ask your context. Right? I like these teachers too, but you know what I found out? It's best to get the context. I'll mend somebody. All right. Well, how about we back up just a little bit and find out what the verse is saying. Let's go to Matthew, Mark 14, 8, 14. Because it's all connected. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, Why? Oh, that's 12. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we don't have bread? And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Look what he says here. Perceive ye not. Do you not understand? Have you your heart yet hardened? Having, oh, wait a second, wait a second. This is important now. Having eyes, you see not. And having ears, you hear not. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves among 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments took you up? Now, let's put into practice the tools that we just used. In this one verse, we see the word perceive, understand, eyes see, ears hear. Okay, so we see senses going on here, right? So let's go down to verse number 22, where we just came from. Blind, blind, uh... We see eyes. Is there anything that connects in these two chapters, these passages of Scripture? How about eyes, seeing, blind, not seeing? Com contrasts and comparisons. Now, if I were to ask you, how did these Scriptures relate, what would you say? Okay, contrasts and comparisons, but look at verse number 14 through 17, 18. Why reason, perceive, Neither you understand, have you? Look at verse 18. Having eyes, you don't see. But if you go to verse 22, bring a blind man and besought him to touch him, took the blind man. So verse number 18 talks about a failure of the disciples to see. Am I correct in saying that? And based upon what he just says, uh, seeing in this case is not talking about physical seeing. It's talking about spiritual seeing. Right? physical or, or how about spiritual perception to understand who Jesus is and then all of a sudden the disciples bring remember the disciples the disciples brought Jesus a blind man and Jesus oh this man can't see physically 
So now we have someone that can't see physically and we have someone that can't see spiritually. And the spiritual people that can't see are bringing a natural person for Jesus to see. So this man can't see physically, but the disciples can't see spiritually. I think that whoever is writing this has a bigger picture in mind right here. So we're seeing that these two passages of Scripture, are you guys following me here? Have everything to do with sight. The common denominator is seeing. Can't see spiritually, can't see naturally. Now watch, what, what, how do we crack this? Well, how about we find out what happens after? That's usually, a, is the conclusion of a movie usually sums it up for us. You know, you ever watch a movie, you don't know what's going on until the last 10 minutes? Two hours, you just have no idea what in the world is going on in the last 10 minutes. Oh, then you got to go see the movie again so you can... Okay. Well, let's go now here to 827. And Jesus went out. And his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say I am? Ah. And they answered, said John the Baptist. And some said Elijah, and some said one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, and said unto them, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he charged them that they should tell no man. Hmm. Now, what just happened in this scripture right here? What happened? Peter answered that he's the Messiah. So, based upon the dialogue that's going on, the disciples can't see, the disciples bring Jesus a blind man, and then Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? They see this, and Jesus says, and Peter says, you're the Messiah. Do you know what it's safe to conclude about this scripture? That the middle text about the blind man is bracketed in between an illustration of the process the disciples are experiencing about their understanding of who Jesus is. Because in the first chapter of scriptures, when they reasoned among themselves, Jesus knew they did not know who he was. But you skip the passage of the blind man, you'll find out that you see the next passage of scripture, they know who he is. So what has happened to their spiritual perception, or let's say their spiritual sight? It has improved. So maybe it's possible that when Jesus found that blind man, he was going to heal him the whole time. But he decided to use being the master teacher that he is, the blind man, as an illustration to the ones who brought him to him about this is how your spiritual perception is working out right now. You're blind and you cannot see. When I found you and when you came to me, you could see nothing. But now... Now in this point in time, you're starting to see who I am. The veil is slowly lifting. And there's going to be a time when I ask you who I am, and you're going to be able to tell me that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just like this blind man had a process of trying to see who I am, now we see that he can see clearly. And then you see the next chapter, who do men say that I am? They're no longer reasoning. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, tell no man. Because if you go tell of the men, they're just as blind as you once were. Wow. So it's not that the man didn't have faith. Maybe Jesus did it on purpose to illustrate to his disciples the process of us coming to know Jesus through the illumination of the Spirit. And then we can apply it by saying, <laughs> we can apply it by saying, how many feel this about themselves? How many look back last year in their lives and say, yeah, I didn't know Jesus as well as I know him now. Look back 10 years. I look back 10 years and think, man, I can't believe people came to hear me preach. And tell me if this is good or bad, but I always have this imagination when I'm reading. And I always imagine he couldn't see because of all of the spit. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I don't think he, uh, he would, Jesus would have had to have a big mouth then, huh? <laughs> he couldn't see because all that spit. <laughs> that is so funny. She couldn't hear because of all, she, never mind. Anyway, that's funny, Sister Anita. Okay, let's go on. Does that, did that bless you? I hope that blessed you. Let's go to uh, pitfalls and applications. Pitfalls and applications, okay. Because somewhere along the line, we have to apply all of this. And uh, I'm going to go through this real quick. Number one, number one, number one. Claiming somebody else's promise. Someone say boo. boo. 
Someone say boo. We don't want to claim other people's promises. There's a song that says, every promise in the book's for me. Every promise in the book's for me. And uh, I, praise God for that. Praise God for that. I believe that the promises of God in the Word, whoever He promised those things to, are for us. Whoever He's promised it for. Now let me say this before I start trying to deduct uh, away from our theology, okay? You start taking promises that are not made to you, you're going to have a hard time understanding what He's talking about in Scripture. You're trying to understand the prophetic books, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. If you do a serious study, you know, some people just open up to the books of the Bible and they hope it doesn't fall on one of those books because there's a lot in it that's not about us. Israel, Babylonian exile, things of that nature, right? Just oh, I open up to Isaiah. Let me do this over again here. Okay. Luke. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> if you, I remember I had minor prophets in class and major prophets. We had to take these classes and the very first thing the professor told us is forget everything that you ever thought God promised you here in these scriptures because you didn't exist back then, neither did the church and neither did the prophets think that the church existed. I thought, wow. So, I'm not saying you can't apply it to your life. I'm not saying if you tell someone God knows the plans he has for you that, that you should stop him from praying and say, that was to Israel, stop praying that over me. Don't do that. But if you're trying to understand it, you need to at least figure out who he's talking to. Right? Okay, let me give you an example. Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah, in this chapter, wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. That's verse 1. That's not what I had in my notes. <laughs> Go to Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Let me show you. Isaiah, Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And you go to Babylonian captivity with them. Hello? Were you, Brad, were you in Babylonian captivity? I didn't think you were there. So, in context, people, this is whom the promise concerned. It's a promise that God was not going to forget the house of Judah in their exile in Babylonian captivity and would bring them back to Jerusalem. And where are they today? In Jerusalem, right? Okay. And they were in Jerusalem long before that. So, though God's character and heart in these verses can be applied, I mean... If God's going to bring them back into their land, how much more does God have a he heavenly Jerusalem for us? These are good applications that we can make. But we should be careful before claiming someone else's promise for the very fact that if we're trying to study the Bible and we read ourselves into these passages of Scripture, we're going to become confused. Find out who the promise is being made for. You say, well, God knows... Listen, people pray that for me. That's fine. I do believe that God has plans to prosper and not to harm you. But if you're asking me who that specific promise was made for, let me ask you this. What about the saints? This is I'm not going to answer this question. I'm going to ask it to you to challenge your thinking. What about the saints right now that are in Mazo, Iraq? Don't know their houses, a lot of them killed. Persecuted. Did God have plans to prosper and not to harm them, give them a hope in the future? They died. So is this promise for us over here and not for them? I mean, what did, what's the deal here? How do you rectify that in your mind? Do you ever see a promise in the New Testament that promises you protection from uh, persecution? No, you do not. If Muslims came in here right now, guess what? And they want to shoot this place up, or they make us renounce it, there's nothing in Scripture that says that God's going to send an angel to stop you and stop them. They may shoot the place up. you just receive the martyr's reward when you get to heaven. Your understanding of the Word of God has got to transcend your welfare in this life. Oh, you're never going to understand the words of Jesus because many times Jesus spoke beyond an understanding of this life. Sometimes we just want to, we find promises that gravitate around us having a happy, happy life, and that's not necessarily the case. Because if having a happy, happy life is the essence of the Bible, then a lot of why people prosper in this life is going to breed frustration in our lives because we're never going to see that even though they may die in their prosperity and the way they have things and we die less than them, you'll find out that the balance of power is going to occur when we get to heaven. You're going to see that people that squandered their money, even though it looked like they prospered here and had no troubles because they were not Christians and they didn't want the gospel, that they had the advantage and maybe well, I should have just never given to the gospel to begin with, you're going to find out that on the other this side of heaven is going to make sense. Is that okay? Is that okay to say that? 
you one of these? I'm not one of these people that we should be aesthetics and just throw off material prosperity. But what I'm saying is that a lot of scripture, you're going to find out that a lot of the great ones of God died, lived treacherous lives, never got the lime life. Paul wasn't St. Paul before uh, the way he was now as he was then. He had to die to get that title. William Wallace would never be William Wallace unless he died to be William Wallace. Amen. Amen. So we'd be careful. I think that it's a lot of nerve for people to take someone else's promise and then say, well, those, I know people that say, well, those people over there in Iraq just have a lack of faith. You talk about audacity and stupidity. Don't give me that. The reason why we don't have that over here is because we have a government that was established upon the word of God. Otherwise, we would have that over here. And don't tell me it's your faith. It's a good established government that we ought to pray for. So we can continue to have that. And I don't know if we are going to continue to have that. But I do know this, that civil problems like we're experiencing today can only be made sense in the, in, in, in the eyes of the gospel. What do you make of all that's going on on the news right now? I can only make sense of it by knowing that I'm part of the family of God and part of the body of Christ. And Jesus says we love one another. Amen. Now that you've heard the light of today, connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390. Or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.